Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, February 1st. Let me give you some numbers because January of the last two years were the two deadliest months from COVID in the whole pandemic in the United States. January 2021, peaking around 3,000 deaths a day, the deadliest single month of the pandemic. January 2022, peaking around 2,500 deaths a day, the second deadliest month when Omicron was still new. So how'd we do this January? Well, much better, but not nearly where we hoped we would be. The month ended yesterday with around 500 deaths per day nationally the last few weeks, as once again the cold weather months and the period right after holiday gatherings saw a spike. But it's only 25% or about really more like 20% of the spike we saw last year in January. So for the year 2022, the CDC reported around 270,000 COVID-related deaths in the U.S. That's down from around 470,000 in 2021. So that's good. But what does 270,000 deaths in a year mean? It means COVID was still the third leading cause of death in the United States last year, behind only heart disease and cancer. That means COVID jumped up above accidents, which used to be the third leading cause of death. And if you're morbidly curious, then came stroke, respiratory diseases, Alzheimer's, and diabetes, according to the CDC. COVID continues to kill more Americans than any of those. And a study out last week rang COVID as the eighth leading cause of death among children. That's Americans under 18. Their count was around 800 U.S. children have died from COVID during the pandemic. That's a tiny percentage, we should say, out of the 1.1 million total American deaths. It's less than 1% of the deaths. And it's a tiny percentage of the number of total children in the country. But since children don't die from anything very much, 800 kids lost to COVID makes it the eighth leading cause of death among kids and something to at least take note of. And by the way, that study estimated that 90% of American kids have now had COVID at least once. And don't forget, according to the New York Times COVID tracker, unvaccinated Americans die from COVID at five times the rate of vaccinated Americans. So since almost all the rules have now come off, and we'll talk about President Biden's new announcement that the country will end the official state of emergency soon, but without vaccination requirements almost anywhere anymore, but that five times higher mortality rate among unvaccinated people, be unvaccinated at your own risk. So we'll talk about these numbers now. Plus, COVID news, including Biden's lifting the state of emergency and what it means, a proposal for an annual COVID vaccine like the annual flu vaccine. There are pros and cons, and scientists are divided. And the state of the latest Omicron variant, which has gotten the nickname 
Kraken with Dr. Daniel Griffin, MD, PhD, Chief of Infectious Disease at Optum, formerly ProHealth, researcher at Columbia, president of Parasites Without Borders. Do parasites have a border crisis too? And co-host of the podcast, This Week in Virology. Dr. Griffin, always great to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Oh, thank you, Brian. It's always great to be back. I, it always reminds me of Prince when you, you talk about Optum, formerly ProHealth, but uh, maybe that's <laughs> exactly. a sign of my um, generation. want to talk about my little data crawl there first. As you compare the three Januaries, 3,000 deaths a day, then 2,500 deaths a day, now 500 deaths a day, and of course, those are very rounded off numbers. What does it tell us about the state of the pandemic? Yeah, um, you know, it, it's hard to say this, but this is a good this is a good thing, right? I mean, we we have come a long way. It, it's crazy that this is um, you know as positive news as we're spinning it. Um, but you know, we, we had reached a peak well early in the pandemic. Uh, people may still remember. A lot of us are trying to forget where just here in New York alone, we were seeing two thousand deaths a day. Um, then we were getting to these high peaks, and and now we're sort of celebrating at only five hundred deaths. Per day, um, but these are dramatic reductions from where we were in the past. And and why are we seeing these dramatic reductions? Um, you know, I think you can sum it up in in one word, and that's immunity. Uh, I mean, ninety seven percent of our population we estimate has has immunity either from surviving prior infection um, or vaccination, or in most cases both. And another tough part about the numbers we're seeing is we have lost um, a million of the most vulnerable um, of our population and about a thousand of the most vulnerable children are not with us anymore. So um, yeah, we, we are in a better place, but boy, this better place is only relative to how bad it was um, in years past. Right, and what about if you can predict it all, how will this curve continue? So if this January's deaths nationally were only 20% of last January's, 500 compared to 2,500, do you expect to see only 20% of that by next January? That would be 100 deaths a day. And then 20% of that in January 2025, which would only be 20 deaths a day? I, I wish I could be as optimistic um, as as that suggestion is. And, you know, and last week there was a FDA meeting where they were talking, you know, I mean, we're, you know, we're in the uh, in the specialty of trying to predict what's going to happen and what we can do about it. So I think, um, you know, when we've gotten to this point that I suggested, 97 percent of our population is is immune. Um, this is what happens to an immune population um, if we don't throw more tools at this. So, you know, there will be more children born. There will be people getting a little bit older each year. Um, unfortunately, the the immunity that we're seeing here um, does does not have the durability that that certain diseases give us. So, um, I don't think any of us are predicting this. You know, this. 80% drop each year. Um, unfortunately, unless we start using some of the tools that we have, um, and I'm going to mention antivirals, unless we get better antivirals um, that more people are willing to use, um, we're still predicting um, surges. We're predicting, um, you know, the, the highest of these surges will be right around this January period of time. Um, but a challenge that came up at the meeting last week of the FDA is that this hasn't settled into, like the flu, with just a winter rise. We, we have seen over the last three years that there's also a summer rise as well. So that's gonna be a challenge um, getting to where we wanna be. 
the Kraken variant. A Kraken is a kind of giant octopus. It's also the name of Seattle's hockey team. Go Kraken, <laughs> except when you play the Rangers, Islanders, or New Jersey Devils. And now Kraken is the nickname for the current dominant variant of COVID, more technically known as Omicron XBB 1.5. Is there something about this variant that resembles a giant octopus? Well, I, I think that the suggestion when it was named uh, the Kraken variant was that, you know, the sky would fall and this would be the end of all of us. And um, and and as I think all of us have experienced, we're, we're still here to do, you know, WNYC, Brian Lair show in the morning. Um, you know, it did not. Are, some of us are. But go ahead. <laughs> but not but not everyone actually is here. Right. Five hundred people a day did not yeah. make it to this point. So I want to, you know, be sensitive to that. Um but, you know, each time we see a, a rise in the number of cases, a rise in the number of hospitalizations and deaths, we tend to see a new variant. You can sort of go back through. Um, but we were predicting in the fall that we would, as we talked earlier in the show, see a rise in cases and then um, all the results of that right around the December, January holidays. And we saw that. Um, and every time there's a rise, there's a different amount of selection pressure to give us, you know, a slightly different change in the virus. So what was the pressure this time? It was trying to get around that 97 percent um, immunity in our population. Um, and that was what drove and continues to drive the success of the Kraken variant. Um, but are we seeing it present much differently? No, we're seeing how a virus presents in an, in an immunized population where in most cases, particularly those that are lower risk, it's presenting with milder symptoms. Um, even those that are high risk, it is often presenting milder. But again, we're trying to jump in because not all those people have a mild uh, course. But no, we're not seeing some uh, groundbreaking uh, change that, that is foreboding the end of the world. A New York Times story on the variant last month said what's unusual about XBB is that it was the product of two different forms of Omicron that both infected someone as they were replicating inside that person. Their genes were mixed together, and then we got a new hybrid. And this hybrid is very good at evading defenses from vaccines and infections. Is that your understanding, too, that there was like a patient zero for Kraken apparently in New York, from what I read, who got two <laughs> kinds of COVID at once, and they mix together and form this even more transmissible version? So I'm going to say yes. And actually, I was just sorry that you didn't quote This Week in Virology, where we discussed this <laughs> in depth. But um, no, the, this virus has a couple different ways, two main ways that it can um, you know, gain fitness advantage. And one is we're pretty familiar with, with mutations, changes in the, uh, in the genetic code, RNA in this case, that changes the spike protein and some of the other features. But also coronaviruses can recombine. So um, as maybe people have learned, you can get more than one thing at the same time. You can even get more than one type of COVID, of SARS-CoV-2 at the same time. And then those can, as we saw in this case, recombine and you can end up then transmitting um, a more fit variant, which is this is our first major recombination variant. Um, Wendy on Twitter asks, please ask Dr. Griffin what he means by immune if people get COVID over and over again. Okay, excellent. So this is a great question, and um, I, I'm going to spend just a little bit of time, but hopefully succinct. Um, and I love to use polio as the analogy, right? So um, most of us, uh, I bet almost all the listeners to this show, uh, got their polio shots when they were younger. That gives us a protection that prevents us from getting paralyzed. 
Um, but as we've seen recently, you still can get infected with the polio virus. You just won't get paralyzed. So the immunity that we're talking about here that is durable with our vaccines and to some degree with prior infection is a reduction in your risk of getting severe disease, of ending up hospitalized, of dying. But that protection against infection, that mucosal high antibody levels that are required for that, that's transient. And that's part of this boosting strategy. We can get that up. It peaks at about four weeks. It wanes by about three to four months. Then a person um, is more susceptible, really back to where they were at getting infected. Um, so that's the big distinction here. I think people were, I think the education, I think we fell down on this, is vaccines prevent disease. Um, they're not great. They're not durable for preventing all infections. The news this week, Dr. Griffin, that President Biden is ending the official state of emergency in May. Will this affect you or your patients at Optum in terms of treatment or prevention they can receive? I read that ending the state of emergency, of emergency, for example, will mean people won't automatically be eligible for free vaccines and free treatment if they're not insured, as they have been before. What, what are the implications of any of that? Yeah, so I, I do think this is going to have an impact, but it, it sounds like it's going to be a, a gradual over time. So one of the first things you, you mentioned vaccines is we are we are headed towards a point where there will no longer be government purchased um, vaccines. And so this is something that your insurance is going to have to cover or people will potentially be paying out of pocket. Um, the suggestion is there's a whole bunch of vaccines still sitting around. So that day may not come as soon as we expect, but we are expecting should there be a recommendation for a fall booster, um, 2023 fall, that those may be coming out of pocket or out of your insurance. Um, the next, this is a challenge, is um, we talked about the antivirals, um, which really makes a lot of sense as a public health strategy. It really cost saving for us as a country, but also huge impact on an individual. Um, those at some point are going to no longer be under the EUA and provided for free. Those are going to reach a point where you're actually going to have to be checking with your insurance, seeing if it's a covered medication. Um, I'm sure these numbers run along the same socioeconomic race and class lines as most things. I'm seeing in Dr. Lena Wen's column in the Washington Post today, only about 40% of those 65 and older have received the updated bivalent booster. Only 40% of immunocompromised people have. Also, Paxlovid uh, is, even among patients 80 and above, being administered only about 45% of the time. These are race and class distinctions, I imagine. So as President Biden makes these things no longer free, what needs to be done to deliver health and health equity in this new phase we're about to enter? Yeah, so th this is going to be a challenge. And, and is, there a, is there a silver line to this cloud? Uh, I'm going to go there a little because most of it is doom and gloom. Um, but right now, physicians are not using um, early antiviral treatment as much as they should. And that's really specifically Paxlovid at this point that we're talking about. Um, and part of it is because it's under EUA, we're in this health emergency. Uh, this is just not a normal licensed medication where they can send out the, um, the, the representatives to the different clinics, educating um, providers, letting them know what a valuable tool this is. Um, once we move into the normal arena with the normal um, 
promotion, marketing, education, whatever we want to call it. My hope is providers realize what an incredibly effective tool this is and what a great thing this can be um, to offer to their patients. So that, that's the silver lining. Um, but the challenge is this is a medication that's about $800 for a course. Um, who's going to pay for that now that it's not coming out of our taxes? Will, will this be covered by the different insurance plans? How will that work? Um, testing too. We just had a caller on. You know, They tested at home. We have so many of these free tests out there. Um, that's going away too. Um, the, the subsidies, all those free tests. So, you know, that, that person sitting next to you at work may be saying, well, it's probably just the flu. I didn't test because I'm not going to spend $10 on a, on a rapid test. So uh, there's going to be some negative repercussions here. So that also brings us, Dr. Griffin, to this new FDA proposal for an annual COVID vaccine or COVID booster to be given in the autumn along with or combined with the flu vaccine, an article in the journal Nature that I read this morning is called, Should COVID Vaccines Be Given Yearly? Proposal Divides U.S. Scientists. And it describes some who think it's a good idea to simplify the scheduling, which would increase the number of people likely to get it. We heard those numbers on how low the uptake is for the latest uh, booster. Others say, no, COVID comes in different waves than the more predictable flu. New variants pop up at different intervals. There have been late summer spikes, not just winter, like with flu so far. So they should continue to be more flexible in terms of timing. And some even say young, healthy people may not need regularly scheduled jabs at all. Do you have an opinion? I, I do. You know, one is it's I, I'm still taken back that nature has titles like this, you know, <laughs> you know, we're, we're not divided as much as we have not reached a consensus yet as we, we navigate what is a challenge. And and you brought up a couple of the points. So one is, um, as we talked a little bit earlier, there's not just one peak with with COVID. Um, you know, COVID is not just a December, January. We also see a summer rise. Um, the other is the logistics of, you know, getting people to to get shots. As we saw when it was recommended this fall, um, we did not have everyone rush in and get those shots. And so this is not the flu. Um, one of the arguments about doing the fall boosters is that we do not want to overwhelm the healthcare system. So we don't want to have as much of a surge with COVID at the same time that we're having RSV, influenza, which is why people talk about the fall. Um, the other is the reality that that extra boost that we talk about um, is really about a three to four month boost. So for certain individuals, um, you know, going into the summer with a rise in the number of cases, um, you know, there may be some consideration for individualizing that. Um, the other side, which I think is is the positive, is that the protection against severe disease, that 90% reduction, um, that number is durable. Sure, we can boost above that for a certain period of time. And then comes the discussion, public health as well as individual, um, who should get boosted above that. For the immunocompromised, they're counting on all of us to get boosted. For those over the age of 50, I'm in that age, those over the age of 65, 70, even more so, um, the more we as a community can can step up with with boosting with these other um, measures the more we can help as a community but but we're Americans we still have that that myth the myth of the Western rugged individual we want to know well what about me um, and the what about me is a more challenging question so clearly people over the age of 50 um, this is a, a worthwhile thing um, but when you start getting into your teenagers your people in your 20s um, then it becomes more of a what am I doing for society as a opposed to being as strong a push for that individual when you're looking at the data. 
Dr. Daniel Griffin, MD, PhD, Chief of Infectious Diseases at Optum Health, researcher at Columbia, president of Parasites Without Borders, and co-host of the podcast, This Week in Virology. Thank you for so much information. We always appreciate when you come on. Oh, thank you so much. And everyone, be safe. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.